that same, not the psalm, but the statement, the prior statement, wasn't that very Armenian in nature? Well, yeah, it's quite Armenian, and that's the point. Uh, it, it, he was specifically Wesleyan, whom my, the Wesleyans, my favorite professor, called the biblical Armenians. Um, uh, they, they, they troubled themselves to be careful with the Bible and, and to try to define their terms. But frankly, if, if Jesus is on the cross, how long? About six hours. Yeah. Um, so Jesus paid six hours of suffering for our sins. And we, if we die and have to pay for our sins, have to pay how long? Eternally. Eternally. Everlastingly. Yes? So when you balance off six hours against an eternal or an an unending payment, Jesus really didn't pay at all. He paid enough. Are you with me? But he didn't pay at all. So... The issue becomes then, uh, if I if uh, what, the, the issue becomes for our, our Wesleyan brothers and sisters, um, what kind of sin is is enough to cause you to lose your salvation? And his answer, and others like him answer, well, there are mistakes and there are out and out sins. But I pointed out to them to him that uh, a mistake in the Bible that is something you do inadvertently. By the way, in Leviticus, the only sacrifices you can, you can make for sin are for what they call inad- inadvertent sin. A sin that was not done in, in uh, terminology that we'd be familiar with, with malice aforethought. Are you with me here? It's not something you set out to do, so, or or you catch yourself in and didn't intend to get into that situation. But in the in the Old Testament legal system, that requires the death of a substitute. Are, are you with me here? If that requires a death, then your mistake requires a death. Right, yes. Um, so. What, what are we to say about this? What is redemption? Well, in redemption, in the law of redemption, you not only have to pay the val- value of the thing that you're redeeming, you also have to pay 20% extra. So it's not enough to say, uh, Jesus paid enough, but he didn't pay it all. He paid it all, plus an indemnity. And, and, the, and the very question becomes then, well, how, what, how, how, where are we to locate specifically the atoning sufferings of Jesus? Is it in the six hours on the cross? And the answer is probably it occurred in the six hours on the cross, but it's not the six hours. It's important that you understand um, the, the dual natures of Jesus. It's about Philippians chapter 2, right? If, if Jesus is a man, then the only sufferings he paid were on the cross and in those six hours. But if he is the God-man, he can bear the infinite wrath of God without reference to time. And he pays more than we can pay because he makes an infinite payment. 
I can never make an infinite payment. If it's an infinite debt that I owe, I will always be paying it off, but never pay. I'm sorry, I will always be paying on it, but never paying it off. But being an infinite person, he can pay it off. And it doesn't require any amount of time to do it. At some point, I, I, the best I can do here, and folks, we're dealing on the very edges of our capacity to even talk about these things. But in those hours of darkness on the cross, which were the three hours of that period, at some point when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That probably is the moment of the atonement. That's the best guess I can make of these things. But having paid, see, he has paid the entire penalty I owe for uh, redeeming me. And and it's, it's accomplished, as our screen suggests, by his blood. Blood here, um, the, when the RSV came out, uh, there's a song that was kind of the seminary song at Dallas when I was there. My hope is built on nothing less than Schofield Notes and Scripture Press. I, I dare, dare not trust the RSV, and ASV is heresy. And they called the RSV back in the 1950s when it first came out. I remember hearing this, the bloodless Bible, because they were trying to get rid of the blood from, from the New Testament. They really weren't. The blood is not the issue. What the, what the blood betokens is the issue. It's a life taken violently. Yes? yes. He, he, uh, he who sheds blood, by man his blood shall be shed. You remember this? So the, the point is not that you prick his finger and he's, he's shed a little blood and everything's fine. The point is that it's a life taken violently. In this case, it's a violent death that is judicial. It's, it's, the, it's the execution of a judicial penalty. I heard about a fellow who drove into a crowd. They, they announced his conviction this morning on the radio as I was on my way down here. Um, 76 counts. And he got, I forget what it was, three life sentences and then 750 years for all the rest. So his life without possibility of parole (laughs) yes Uh, we say that now the victims have gotten justice okay except that he still gets to live (laughs) are you with me (laughs) so and but if you if you if you executed him you couldn't execute him three times plus the 70, uh, 73 other counts. Are you with me here? Uh, so so the, the violent death of a, of a criminal is not really, it's the most we can do in justice, but it really isn't satisfactory. Um, if they had captured Adolf Hitler at the end of World War II, what penalty could they assess against him that would be a worthy penalty for his crimes. There is none. Are you, does that make sense to, to you? So how do we even think in these terms when we think of the enormity of such crimes, but realizing that one sin on my part 
is worthy of the same penalty. Do you follow? I, I want you to, if, if, if by, by the way, folks, suppose you had a prize fruit tree in your backyard and a kid from the neighborhood jumped the, back, the, the fence and stole a piece of fruit from that tree. Would you execute him and all of his descendants in perpetuity? But that's what Adam and Eve did. They stole a piece of fruit. I'd say if his name was Adam, we would. That's right. And, there, and, and why? Because, folks, one stolen piece of fruit, <laughs> or two, if you will, uh, um, means that, that many of us are wearing glasses today. And we have gray hair. And sore knees, sore knees, and hips, and back, and shoulders, and uh, uh, and we will die, and all of our heirs will die. Yes. So how bad is one sin? It's worse than we even dreamed. My sins are not so bad. Yours are terrible, but mine are not so bad. Yes, yours are reprehensible. No, no excuse for your sins. Mine, oh yeah, I've got plenty of excuses for mine. I've got, I've got a master's degree in self-justification. So I, and, I, and I graduated with honors, frankly. Summa cum laude in this. But this, the redemption that Jesus pays has to be more, has to be assessed as more than simply the amount of time he spent on the cross. The cross was only the means to that, and again, you know the Old Testament background for this. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And from God's point of view, Israel must not expose anyone by impaling them on a, on a wooden stake and leave them overnight. It will defile the land, and so they must take them off the stake before nightfall, or it will defile the land. Uh, so... Um, Jesus is impaled, in, in effect, impaled on a stake. Mm-hmm. Yes? Two things. One, so you're saying that <clears throat> redemption always involves an exchange. Yeah. You have to. So if I redeem something, there's got to be some sort of an exchange. Yeah. Now, whatever that value is. So since the, the work of redemption in the cross was uh, that eternal, that divine work, of Jesus. What's the significance of the six hours and the three hours of darkness? Uh, he suffered genuinely the death of a criminal. And that's that's an important part of this. See, he didn't die as... He was not put there as a righteous man. Israel assessed him to be a criminal. And so he dies a criminal's death. And the Romans only... Um, uh, crucified by and large, especially in the first century, the, the Romans only crucified enemies of the state. So that's why the the importance of of the of the titulum that's placed over Jesus' head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, he makes pretension to be uh, king, and that's flying in the face of Caesar. And so uh, he is he is put on trial as a as a traitor. To the ruler of the of the world, Caesar had the pretension to be the ruler of the world. Does this make sense to you? So there's a lot going on here. 
Uh, yes. Been that you know it was blood and death, mm-hmm. but he could have been shot or stabbed. I, I, in my mind, I've had the cross as like a Flannery O'Connor moment from God. You know, but she wrote the fiction and she exaggerated these characters yes. and closeness. Yeah. That God is kind of shouting in our faces as bad it is. You know, kind yeah. of like, but that it didn't have to be. Yes. Cross. Yeah, but he chose it in some ways to say this is what in in the culture this was the right way to go because um, I'm trying to think of the author. Uh, there's a German author whose whose many of his works are written in English now. What is that guy's name? It won't come to me right now. The title of the book is merely crucifixion, and it's a it's about 70 or 80 pages, not terribly long. But it's a, a study of what crucifixion meant in the first century. Uh, and he cites, do you know the name Cicero? Not Illinois. <laughs> uh, Cicero wrote at some point, may the very name of the cross be far from every Roman citizen. This is a, the most shameful death you can die. Um, and so he dies a shameful death as a traitor, uh, condemned as a criminal. But that's who we are. Every one of us is a traitor to the true king. We are, we are under condemnation. It's a shameful death that we deserve. And he, he died this death. Um, it's an extremely shameful way of dying because the Bible is not spoken a lot about all the things that happen during crucifixion to the human body yeah the the reality that he dies so early is uh, is significant uh, the, you could last eight to ten days on the cross the the nails were placed in the arm next to a nerve whose name I have read but have no idea what it was but it was next to a nerve pardon Ulnar? Is that what it is? I, I couldn't tell you at this point. But you, because you're hanging there, the pressure's all on your chest and you can't breathe, so you have to push up. But every time you push up, it, it scrapes that nerve. And it's just, it's just searing pain. As you know, you've had this kind of thing happen to you in one way or another. Oh, yeah. So uh, it's, it's a horrible way to die. But folks... If all Jesus did was pay a redemption price for us, here is the effect of us, or, or, or upon us. The effect is, Jesus simply reto- restores us to the position where Adam and Eve are in, in the garden before the fall. They, they have no righteousness of, uh, at all, but they're not sinners either. Does this make sense? All right? So, if we are at moral neg- negative um, infinity uh, on on sin, uh, one, see the, the the seriousness of a sin is measured by the person against whom you sin. Does that make sense? If I sin against my wife, that that's really really bad. Yes, if you sin against God. 
then it is infinitely worse. Uh, they haven't sinned against God before eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, so they're at, they're at moral zero here. They don't merit anything from God, nor do they owe him any debt because they haven't violated any, any of their relationship with him. So how do we get from point of being simply back at moral zero? How do we get beyond that? Well, that's the next part of the verse. So verse 24, just by way of review, being justified, God has declared us in right relationship with himself. And this is, this is accomplished freely without our paying for it, as we talked about it in recent days. Um, without our paying for it, it's accomplished by his grace and it's accomplished through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Because now uh, Jesus has died and we have trusted Jesus, then God can declare that we have right relationship with himself. Uh, But then verse 25 adds, whom God set forth as, And there are different translations here. Sacrifice of atonement is the NIV. Some are now reading. This is the the normal word in in the Greek Old Testament to translate what we call the mercy seat. Um, So uh, the the covering of the ark, the lid of the ark, um, this is the word that you would use for that. It can also be a place of making propitiation. But propitiation is not a word that we use very often. Uh, all of this leaves us simply, uh, uh, I'm sorry, sin leaves defilement, and that still causes wrath. So under the Old Testament law, and folks, you've got to study the Old Testament law at some point. Somebody's got to work you through this material because this is not something you can just sit down and figure out on your own, typically. It's a, it's a different world. But under the Old Testament law, if I sin... I cause defilement either to you or to myself or to the presence of God, and that has to be dealt with. Uh, This is what the sin offering in the Old Testament was about. The sin offering is not made for some peculiar sin. It's, it's, It's made for the defilement that sin causes. Um, so, uh, proper, probably the proper translation of the word is not sin offering. In Leviticus chapter 5, it begins around verse or thereabouts. I can't remember where. Uh, no, that's no. I'm sorry. That's in chapter four, uh, four one to five eleven or thereabouts. The proper translation is probably purification offering. Uh, and the way you purify is by sprinkling with blood of all things. <laughs> uh, now I'm not a a physician nor the son of a physician. <laughs> So I'm this this kind of outside my field, but generally speaking, if I sprinkled you with blood, you'd think you were defiled. You need to go clean up. Yes? Uh, but clean is a cultural context, concept, and you don't understand clean until you've been in a different culture where clean has a different definition. <laughs> uh, so in India, where, the, where air conditioning is not widespread, Clean is a fundamentally different concept because, what did you say? Oh, no, not that. I have never had much problem with that. Maybe it's just because 
just, maybe it's just because my smeller is off. But but folks, they don't, if you don't have air conditioning, you don't have glass in your windows. You have shutters. And in the parts of India I've been to, there's there's dirt pretty much everywhere. So if you have if you have windows with no glass, just shutters, what happens? Dust can get in really easily, yes? And dust is everywhere, but they don't notice it because their house is clean. From their point of view. Does this make sense? When you have air conditioning, clean is a basically different concept. <laughs> so uh, clean is a, is a cultural concept. And for an Israelite who had been defiled by sin to be sprinkled by the holy priest with blood from the sacrifice meant that he was purified. Does this make sense to you? Well, what's God going to do for us in this regard? And that's our term propitiation here. Um, So in verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Lots of discussion have gone on about this word. Does it mean to propitiate or does it mean to expiate? And I know you've been struggling over that very, very distinction. I've been asking the question, does this mean propitiate or does it mean expiate? Uh, And I know a guy who wrote an article on this some years ago. (laughs) Know him pretty well. Um, uh, And there's an old debate that goes back to the 1930s, a guy named C.H. Dodd, who had no real love for much of anything Christian, though he was one of the editors for the uh, RSV RSV is heresy. Uh, um, the story goes as uh, if you walked by his office while he was editing the text. If he was reading a passage on the wrath of God, he'd say, what rot? He, he denied absolutely that God has wrath against our sin. Um, and script, the scriptures clearly teach it. So what's going on here? Um, what Dodd proposed for this word that we translated propitiation here, what he proposed is that we translate it expiate. Okay, so what do I do with that, Almond? And the answer is this. To expiate, um, th- this language comes out of, the, out of Latin for the most part. To expiate means to remove the defilement from someone who is defiled. Okay? Sometimes that requires sacrifice. Sometimes it requires... In Israel, under the law, sometimes it requires bathing. Sometimes it requires washing your clothes. Are you with me here? But sometimes, for major defilements, it it requires sprinkling with blood. So to expiate. Um, It's interesting because in English... That's right. I, you cannot you cannot see that word anywhere. Yeah. But in Spanish is a whole word. The word everywhere. propitiate is a is a word that means um, to turn away someone's wrath. And uh, I t- teaching theology, one of the best things and worst things that God ever did for me <laughs> was bring me to Memphis to teach at Mid South Bible College, Mid South Bible College. <laughs> uh, because they assigned me to teach systematic theology for which I was unduly, amazingly prepared by my degree in Old Testament. 
so I got around to uh, a course on doctrine of salvation, and I, I came to propitiate, and I thought, I can't, I can't just leave this unstudied, but I didn't have the resources. The, the, um, the uh, software was not developed yet for doing this, but I, I went to the Old Testament. I did have the Greek Old Testament and the Greek New Testament as Word documents, and I could search them and uh, come up with passages, and I began to notice something. Uh, this word is used in places where where there's defilement that's being removed. You know the word atone in in the Old Testament? Atone and atonement? You know that word? Um, it often translates a word, a kafar in Hebrew. Um, and the question people have had, and this was part of what C.H. Dodd was struggling with, does this mean... Uh, to deal with a problem in God, or does it mean to deal with a problem in us? And the remarkable thing is, in a in a large number of passages, um, that word deals with both. The problem that I have before God, because He's wrathful against my sin, and the problem that God has about me because of my defilement. And when kafar is accomplished. We translated atone. When when kafar is accomplished, it is because first there has been a removal of the defilement, and therefore second, the wrath of God has been turned away. And this has been a debate for since the 1930s. I, I, this this article came back out in 2015, and uh, the only contribution to that journal that I ever got any feedback on from anyone at Dallas Seminary was from the president. That was pretty good. And he said, I, that article just was so much help. Thank you. And and I thought, well, good. <laughs> Somebody believes there's something there. Uh, my, my point is, folks, that God can't turn his wrath away until the cause of the wrath is removed. As long as the cause of the wrath is there, See, that's the, that's the problem because we keep attributing God uh, traits of humans. Well, but the Bible does, and we and there's no other way to talk about it. Yeah. There there are no options. I, I don't have any other frame of reference to talk. But the Bible talks about the wrath of God far too often for us to. I don't think we. I don't think by wrath we understand exactly what wrath is different than. It don't make no never mind. We understand enough. <laughs> uh, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, you know. So, um, the we understand wrath, but if God's wrath is that much worse, yeah, what we do understand is is bad. Bad, yeah. Its reality is worse. Yes. Yeah. So, so at some point, God can't simply then redeem us. He has to. He has to change something in our relationship with himself such that his, his wrath is turned away. But the, the defilement of sin remains. And this is crucial to this whole discussion. Propitiation acknowledges that I am defiled in sin. And, and simply having redemption, redemption 
leads to, and that the first chart I had here this afternoon, redemption, there was an arrow pointing to forgiveness. Redemption means the, pen, the penalty's been paid. It's now forgiven to me. Um, but I'm still defiled. So what, what happens? Yes, sir. Help me understand what defilement means. Okay, I don't know. Let me, let me give you the best I can do with it. This is the language the Old Testament uses. Um, there are... How can I say this? There are three realms in which one can live. One can live in the unclean realm. Think about Israel in the wilderness. One can be in the unclean realm, or he can be in the clean realm, or he can be in the holy realm. Certain kinds of sins are so... um, Yeah, that that's the word that came to my mind, but I was trying to find a better one. So offensive that the person who has committed it has to be banished from the clean realm to the unclean realm. Miriam, this is not a sin. Well, it is a sin, but her, her leprosy, remember she's stricken with leprosy. She has to leave the camp of Israel because it's the clean realm and go out into the unclean realm until she is healed. Remember this? Any leper, and by the way, leprosy ain't what you think. It's some kind of a skin disease that is a, a, a patchy white blotch on your on your skin. Well, I, I don't know. Uh, R.K. Harrison was a was a physician, and in his commentary on Leviticus, it says he says uh, the symptoms are too varied; they're too wide. I can't give a I can't give a diagnosis to this. It's, it appears to be some kind of skin disorder. But as long as you're, as that white patch is on your skin, you're defiled. But if it covers you head to foot, you're clean. Yeah, I know. It's, that was my first response, too. Uh, but the problem back then is that they, they did not know the difference. They didn't have the scientific knowledge, medical knowledge. So anything skin, they could attach it to That's the right. So, so if, if I have, am blotchy, I'm to be put outside the camp, and I must stay out there until... One of two things happens. Either I am restored to complete health or it covers my head, head to foot. Then it takes a two-week ritual before you can move back into your, into your tent. First week, the, the priest comes and examines you and decides, okay, yeah, this looks like a, a clean condition, but you have to wait a week, comes back and examines you again, and if, if it hasn't changed, then you can move into the camp, but you can't move into your tent. You can stay outside your tent, but you can't live in your tent. Another week must pass. The priest must come and examine you, and then you must make all the ritual, the, the sacrifices that are necessary for it. There's a, there's, a, there's a guilt offering, which is a, a restitution offering for the service that you should have rendered God in the period that you've been ill, you make a restitution offering, and then you make a purification offering, and then you make a peace offering so that you can be restored to the camp. Are you with me here? And that's not even for a sin. And as far as I can tell, leprosy is not 
a, a symbol of sin in Scripture. It's just a symbol of leprosy. <laughs> the, the, uh, so, so I don't even have to commit a sin to be unclean and have to move outside the realm of the clean. But the camp of Israel is holy. But within the camp of Israel, there are three stages of holiness. So the camp is holy, and every Israelite in the camp is holy because they're so obedient and so godly. Amen? No, they're not. They're, they're unbelieving, they're rebellious, they're idolatrous, but they're holy. But there, there's a more holy place toward the center, namely uh, at, the, at the door of the tent of meeting, uh, at the uh, gate to the tent of meeting is the camp of Moses and Aaron. And surrounding the tent of meeting is the camp of the, of the Levites. No Israelite can approach the Lord other than by the gate. Jesus says the gate. Amen. Yeah, but there's more to it. If Moses and Aaron are more holy their camp is more holy than the camp of the normal Israelite because Moses is the mediator between God and man. Aaron's the high priest. The only way you can approach God is by his, 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 his authorized covenant mediator and his authorized priest. Can you make any kind of lessons out of that? <laughs> the only way I can approach God is by the right covenant mediator and the right priest. Then I must go through the gate. If I try to get in any other way, the Levites are, are stationed. Their camps are there. They're stationed around the temple, around the tabernacle complex to kill anyone who tries to come any other way. They're, they are guards. Am I making sense to you? Because inside the compound is a holier place still. But it's still not holy as it's going to get because once you pass through the veil of the tabernacle, you're in what's called the holy place, the outside, yes? And once you get in there, you can't go any further unless you're a high priest and unless it's the Day of Atonement. And that's the most holy place. So in effect, I have the camp, the camp of the, of the Levites, the compound, the, the holy place and the most holy place. So in effect, I have five stages of holiness. The more I sin, the more I am distanced from the holy. So there's the there's the there's the unclean the unclean the clean yeah there's the there's the unclean the clean and the holy. But the holy has actually five stages to it. Does this make sense to you? So to, to, so if, if you if you are defiled with certain kinds of defilement, some are minor defilements, some are major defilements. If you've touched a touched a dead body, that's a major defilement. And you don't even have to do it on purpose, or even with your own awareness. You can be walking along, and and a dead creature is on the on the ground. You didn't even see it, and you step on it, and you're defiled. It's not not intentional, but you're defiled. Then you have to go through the ritual of purification and restitution 
before you can be readmitted into the presence of the camp. Does this help at all? Talking about what, what does it mean to be undefined, uh, to be unclean? Unclean means you have no access to the to the holy. Yeah, it, it lost any sacredness or holiness. It's it's. I, the best I can do is a silly illustration, but Mr. Nitrogen and Mr. Glycerin can't live together in the same place. So what's unclean and what's holy? When they're brought into into contact, one has to destroy the other, and it's not going to be the holy that's destroyed. So. So the unclean is absolutely distant from God. So in order to be brought into the presence of God, I must have something that purifies me so that I can move into the presence of God. And it's this concept of propitiation that I'm suggesting to us here. In what, uh, in what book did God say, be holy because I'm holy? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Yeah, and he says that, on several occasions in 21, 22, 23, 24. First, uh, Peter quotes it. Yeah. Peter. Yeah. Well, there, there's the holiness code in Leviticus, which is Leviticus 22 to 24, I think it is, 23. And uh, there on several occasions, you are to be holy for I am holy. Um, so um, the, 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 the issue of propitiation, uh, these verses... 1 Samuel 3, 13 and 14, chapter 6, verse 3, and Lamentations 3, 42 and 43. We're not going to take time to look at today because we've spent a lot of time on this. But these are the kinds of things where you there's, there is an estrangement in a relationship. The cause of the estrangement has been removed. And then um, people have done, taken steps to restore the relationship. This is propitiation. So this leads me to this chart. Redemption takes me, who am at negative morality, infinite, and there's that infinity sign there, infinite negative morality. Redemption brings me up to moral zero. But unless I have propitiation, I remain at moral zero, and all I, have, all I can do is try to earn the favor of God. But God has solved that problem because he has expiated my uncleanness and he is therefore propitiated that is he has removed my uncleanness and now his wrath is turned away and and, and I usually ask at this point folks is there some attribute of God that's revealed in scripture that's midway between wrath and full pleasure in his in his creation where he he's not mad at us but he didn't like us all that much yeah that's enough I I don't even so to put it in biblical terms is there a, a an attribute midway between wrath and love if his wrath is removed then what's left is the love of God how much? How much love? Infinite. infinite wrath. Yeah, so if it was infinite wrath and that's removed, there's a, turn to John 17. Um, this, is, this is the true Lord's Prayer. <laughs> uh, John 17. Um, he's 
in verse 20, he begins to pray, especially for the unity of uh, uh, the unity of, of his followers. And in verse 23, in further explication of this unity of his followers, he says, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected into unity. So that what? What does your text say? So that the world may know that and what does it mean? Love them as you have loved me. What does the word as mean there? Yeah, what does that mean? The same. Same. How much does Jesus love you? How much does the Father love you? Well, no. He loves you the same way he loves Jesus. Are you with me here? He he has the same love for you that he has for Jesus. That's possible because of propitiation. Well, he he doesn't address that here in this passage. I'm, I'm just dealing with what... Paul has in this passage. Adoption, though, he's, he's given us the full status of Jesus, which I don't understand at all. I, I can't imagine why God would give us the full status of Jesus. But he did. Would you say that that, that infinite wrath and infinite love are two sides of the same coin, the coin being God's holiness? I don't know. Um, part of our problem is we're, we're to, to talk about God is nearly impossible, except that we have guidance from God about how to talk about him. So he's given us analogies which are valid. Uh, and the best I can do is to use his, his analogies, but when he is silent on a subject, I probably need to be too. <laughs> so I probably don't want to, to go beyond what I can point out in Scripture. I, I learned this from Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Um, I have put these things in figurative form concerning myself and Apollos so that in us you may learn. And I think the the rest of the verse, it's not usually translated this way, but I think this is the way it ought to be read. So that in us you may learn, and parenthetically, the truth of the statement, nothing beyond what's written. And I really want to hold to that as much as I can. Um, There are several other places that you can go look at in reference to propitiation. And uh, these are worth looking at at some point uh, and and thinking about. Um, But in Exodus 30, verse 10, it clearly is talking about cleansing. So expiation would be the right word there. Leviticus 4.20 is clearly talking about the removal of wrath. So propitiation is the right word there. But therefore, it's the same word in Hebrew so I think what we have to do is say we've got this category and the best way I can explain what it's talking about is what the NIV does, sacrifice of atonement. Uh, the word atonement, you may have heard this before and I, I checked it to see if it's right and it is. By the way, I watched the movie The Professor and the Madman last night, yesterday <laughs> afternoon. I, I love that movie. It's, it's where my heart beats, really. Honestly, the love of words and the, this, the meanings of words. But uh, 
the, the professor and the madman is how the Oxford English Dictionary came to be put together. Uh, and I looked at the Oxford English Dictionary. I have it at home. I have a big two-volume set that has the entire Oxford English Dictionary at some point in its evolution. Uh, in minuscule type, you, you have to use a magnifying glass to read it. Uh, thankfully, I'm, I'm nearsighted, but I'm getting other problems that interfere. But uh, the word atonement comes from an old English word, one-ment. Uh, people who have a good relationship are at one-ment. Okay? And, and if, they are, if they are estranged, then someone may come into their lives and, and work to bring them back to the point where they are at one. The process then is called at one and the verb is atone, or now atonement. So I heard this years ago, and I thought, no, that's too easy. That, that can't be right. But the Oxford English Dictionary says so. If OED says it, it's got to be so. It's kind of like what Mama said. Mama said it. If Mama says so, it's so. <laughs> so here, the Oxford English Dictionary is on my side on this, on this matter. Um, so, verse 25. We've come all the way. I'm sorry, Romans... Uh, yeah, verse uh, 3, verse 25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation through faith, accomplished by his blood for the demonstration of his righteousness. I am now ready in Paul's passage to define grace. Uh, grace is the favor of God. And here it is on the screen. Grace is the favor of God shown for the sake of Jesus to those who have forfeited all claim on God's favor. We have usually used the concept unmerited favor for Jesus. I want you, if, if you want this definition, I'll wait a minute for you to write it down. This is the best I can do with the concept. Grace is the favor of God shown for the sake of Jesus to those who have forfeited all claim on God's favor. Um... Uh, the the problem with the term, with the expression unmerited favor is it doesn't say enough. Let me explain that by going back to the charts that we've just looked at. And I have so few charts. Please, please pay attention to these charts. I I don't think visually. I'm not a visual thinker at all. I apologize. It would be a I'd be a better teacher if I were a visual thinker, but I'm not. Um, more uh, unmerited favor could be simply this chart. I haven't done anything really bad, or if I have, it's all been taken care of. I haven't done anything really good either. That would be unmerited favor, yes? It doesn't tell us about the favor we actually have from God, and that's why I prefer the definition I've given. And, and thus, this chart is critical. This whole chart is the chart of grace. Grace takes those who have moral, infinite moral um, wickedness. That is, infinite moral guilt. Guilt, by the way, folks, is uh, 
is the facet of wrongdoing that entails punishment, that, that we are liable to punishment. So far, so good? Yes? So when we declare... See, a criminal before the court isn't guilty until the court pronounces the, the verdict. Only then is the criminal guilty. Up to that point, the, the criminal is accused, but he's not guilty before the law. Yes? Guilty before the law means that he's now liable to punishment. And the next phase of the court case is to figure out what the punishment's going to be. Am I, am I with you? Are you with me on this? All right. So unmerited favor could mean that we haven't done anything really bad. I'm sorry. Let me say it even differently. Unmerited favor could mean that though we've done lots of really bad things that merit punishment, that punishment has been paid, we haven't done anything good that gives us any standing in God's eyes, but we, we, have, we receive unmerited favor. God's not mad at you. He's not just real happy with you. Grace says no. And, and uh, part of the way that I came to this definition of grace, let me move back there now, was through the study of 1 Samuel 9, 2 Samuel 9 and the story of David and Mephibosheth. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I may show God's favor for the sake of Jonathan? Uh, has Mephibosheth done anything good that would give him the favor, of, uh, favor in David's eyes? No. Is there anything about Mephibosheth that would lead to disfavor in David's eyes? Well, two things. He's a descendant of Saul. Yeah, he was Saul's and second, he's lame in both feet. Well, that's usually, under the Old Testament, viewed as some kind of problem that this person has with God. The whole house of David, whole house of Saul, is now lame in both feet. They're not able to serve. Um, never thought that thought before, so it's probably wrong. Don't write that down. <laughs> uh, but... Um, so why is David going to do it? He's going to do it for the sake of Jonathan. And what is the effect for Mephibosheth? Grace. Well, yes. But what is the practical effect for Mephibosheth in his life? He has a, ta- a seat at the king's table. Does this make sense to you? Uh, he is one of the innermost confidants of the king. Um, that's you, you see the point here. That's grace. That's grace. That's grace. So, to put it in terms of David and Mephibosheth, it's the favor of God, because he says, Who, "Is there anyone left that I may show God's favor, shown for the sake of Jonathan, to one who has forfeited all claim on his favor?" He, he, there is no claim that Mephibosheth has in himself upon David for any kind of favor. But he's going to get God's favor for the sake of a third party, namely Jonathan in this case. And he is given the status that Jonathan could have aspired to had he lived. But that's the status that we get. 
so unmerited favor is okay. It just doesn't say enough. We need, we need a better definition of it. Um, then um, in this passage, we're looking at this idea, righteousness, the work of God's grace without causing its recipients, verse 24. It's the work that Jesus did and why that we've been just unfolding. And the goal of it is set out in verses 25 and 26, and I know we're right at the end of the hour, so I'll make this very quick. Two reasons that God did this. Verse 25. Um, For the demonstration of his righteousness and the passing over sins committed beforehand in the forbearance of God. Uh, David committed adultery and judicial murder and God forgave him. Is God just in dealing with David? Yes, and the answer, the reason is that God's the definition of justice, but it doesn't look like justice to me. It looks, it could look like to me that David was kind of a favorite of the Lord, and so he cut him a little slack because he was one of his favorites. But if I did that, if I committed adultery and murdered the woman's husband, would God treat me the same way? Well, no. So is God just in dealing with David? Yes, because he put a greater David on the on the cross and slaughtered him for not only David's sin, but for all sin. And then second, in verse 26, you have the second part of this. It begins toward the, the middle. Uh, well, it's, it, it, it begins a little bit later in the verse. For the demonstration of his righteousness in the present time, so that he might be righteous... And one of the great commentaries on this passage suggests that we should translate the, this, even though he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. Uh, so, so how can faith be enough? I don't know because I don't understand faith. I understand something about faith, but I don't know why it's so valuable. It's so valuable that Only one experience in Jacob's life is named as faith in Hebrews 11. Do you know what it is? He blessed the sons of Joseph about things to come. And that was so important to God that that became the standard of faith for Jacob's life. Jacob. You know Jacob. Wouldn't want him as my next door neighbor, because he'd cheat you. He's like his grandfather. Abraham will cheat you, and God will protect him. I can understand Abraham's faith being valuable in God's eyes. There's one passage, Isaiah Genesis 28, where you really get an insight into Isaac's faith. Joseph's faith is magnificent all the way through from beginning to end. Jacob. Come on, Lord Jacob. As one of my professors said, if he let sinners into heaven, he'd pick the angels' pockets. <laughs> I'm not sure Jacob isn't trying to swindle some angel up there, <laughs> even at this moment. <laughs> Except that God shows his righteousness in dealing with us 
by the work of Jesus. So, um, we'll talk next week, next time in January. January 12th is what, is that what we are saying? January 12th. Yeah. All right. So I'll see you January 12th, and we'll we'll talk about three different kinds of forgiveness. And this is really important because the Bible says lots of different things about forgiveness, and it's hard to put them together. So we'll talk about that when we get together in January. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for these these people who love your word. Thank you. Thank you that... They aren't just dallying with these things. They're, they're really serious. Thank you for giving them to me as, a, as some people to talk about your word with. Most importantly, though, Father, if you don't open our hearts to receive these things, we'll never get them. So would you do that for us, Father, as we have studied, as we have thought, as I've tried to define things? Would, would you help me even? embrace these things so that I can really live in the freedom that is ours through Jesus. It's hard for me to understand that you would give me a seat at the king's table for the sake of Jesus. But you did that for Mephibosheth, and that was only at David's court. How could you do that for me at your court? But you have. You've promised us at a time in, we pray, not so so distant future. For our children's sake, for our grandchildren's sake, we plead with you that it will not be in a terribly distant future when Jesus will return and establish the kingdom and, and bring your name, as, as you say in your word, that uh, your name will be one in all the earth. Uh, let that happen, Father out of mercy for this poor world that is so deep in sin and can't even tell it. They think their sin is righteousness. Do it for this poor world that that you have set out to redeem through the work of Jesus. And even as we now prepare for Thanksgiving next week and Christmas season that comes up next month, keep our eyes on Jesus and what he is doing. <laughs> even with the football games on Thursday afternoon. Uh, uh, Keep our minds on Jesus, celebrating his great work. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.